Welcome to the IWP podcast, coming to you live from the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C. I'm Jim Robbins, Dean of Academics at IWP, an accredited graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs, offering a variety of certificates, master's degrees, and doctorates, both in person and online. You can check out our programs and our courses at our website, iwp.edu. Welcome to part two of our two-part conversation on defining terrorism with Dr. Jim Robbins and Dr. Christopher Harmon. Make sure to subscribe, share with your friends, and leave us a rating. Here's your host, Jim Robbins. Yeah, let's let's talk about the religion angle a little more because <clears throat> one of the things that hampers a good discussion, a really good technical discussion of terrorism in this country is this uh, Islamophobia charge that is leveled if anybody wants to dwell on the jihadists and their tactics and their motivation. Uh, it's hard to, and, and as we know, in particularly in government circles and education circles, if you say the wrong thing, uh, you get canceled. <laughs> A uh, guy got fired from the um, <clears throat> Joint Forces Staff College because he had a PowerPoint slide that said we were at war with Islam. And he wasn't even making that as a point. He was just saying some people say that, but nevertheless, he got fired. And uh, others who've had tried to have uh, good discussions about these types of motivations or, or this background to what we're doing, particularly when the war on terrorism was uh, more determined that people just had a hard time expressing what they needed to express while also staying within the boundary lines that were set by the politically correct, who if they said the wrong thing or seemed to say the wrong thing or accused of having a dog whistle of being anti-Islamic or bigoted, then they face penalties. And I mean, that was very frustrating. I know for me, particularly when I was teaching before government audiences, of, uh, you know, the fear essentially of saying something that someone in the audience and typically not a Muslim and typically not one of our foreign students from the Middle East, because they knew, I mean, they, they were the ones who had the best take on everything because they had been fighting it in their own country. And they well understood the difference between radical extremism and the regular Islam that they practiced every day or the thing that they were defending in their own countries. Well, yes, if you if you had and you and I both taught a lot of military officers from abroad, it, you know, if we have an Algerian in our class, what's his sense for terrorism? Uh, you know, his his sense is the wholesale slaughters that occurred in the 90s with groups um, that were international sometimes in scope and that were an absolute deadly enemy of the government of Algeria. So you or I might be kind of dispassionate about whether we support the government of Algeria, but he as an officer would just be appalled by the near civil war in his country in the 90s over over fundamentalist religion with a, with a, with a, with a terrorist you know, implement. In, in its hand. Oh, I, like you, I, I taught Middle Easterners that, that felt that way. You know, if we go up from the personal level to the national, 
The big news of the week is Iranian missile attacks and drone attacks into Pakistan. And there's a quarrel between two Islamic states. Now, some people might say it's Shia versus Sunni, and that would be interesting. That's certainly how ISIS operates against Shia. Um, but it could be more border conflict. But either way, th those conflicts can't be explained by any American attitude at all, let alone Islamophobia. Um, we both remember when the Saudi Arabians faced a terrific uh, attack series, a campaign against them by Al-Qaeda uh, 20 years ago, and they had to deal with that with a great deal of force. And they know all about the difference, you know, between Islam and militant uh, Islam that's engaged in terrorism, which I should say militant Islamism, a political doctrine, not just a religious one. Uh, so there are quite a few examples that show these are real differences between people and they have nothing to do with Americans. In the end, you know, a, a lot of modern terrorism has killed much more, uh, many more people in, in Muslim countries than it has here in America. Absolutely. I, I thought that this, this sort of uh, intellectual blinders that we put on, it was an American phenomenon based on American domestic politics. This whole, you know, Islamophobia thing really had nothing to do with the issue so far as it was concerned in the Middle East. And uh, my thing to stay out of trouble when I taught for the government was if I had uh, people from the Middle East, officers usually from um, Muslim majority countries, and we had to do a, a briefing in the class on the fundamentals of Islam, I would get them to do it. <laughs> I would get them to do the briefing. They would get a, the students would get a better briefing, number one. And number two, if anybody in the audience was triggered by something that was said, well, too bad because it was someone from that country, from that faith. They knew what they were talking about. And really, it was it was an American problem dealing with this, whatever it was, uh, and not their problem. Their problem was the fact that they had radical extremists in their country killing people. And uh, they were in part motivated by an interpretation of this religion that was turned into a political doctrine. Uh, which was a, a time-honored tradition in that part of the world. It's just something that happens, and Americans shouldn't get upset about it. Uh, it's just something to deal with. Uh, I know that we discussed this before. I visited Morocco where they uh, licensed the imams um, because they want to make sure that extremists are not people in the pulpit. And this is true throughout West Africa because the king of Morocco is also the leader of the uh, Islamic sect in that part of the world. And visiting their school where they, where they teach the imams, um, they talked about every aspect of Islamic extremism because they want them to be able to spot these tendencies in their congregations and, when they, and to be able to talk these people down off of it. And they teach the most radical types of these, these uh, Islamist doctrines because they feel that that's the only way to deal with it. So they, 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 every, the whole spectrum of uh, Islamic thought from the most violent jihadist, you know, comprehensive totalitarian uh, doctrines down to the most pacific, 
They teach it all because they want people to be exposed to it. And to me, that is uh, probably the best way to cope with this thing is to talk about it, expose it. And anything that hampers that discussion, like everybody trying to see who's, who's you know, not offending somebody else by what they say, is really detrimental to our national security and uh, to stability in that part of the world. Just my two cents. Oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, some of the prison programs have had successes overseas by using really expert imams to go in and actually argue with those convicted and and jailed on terrorism charges. Um, This has been done in Europe widely. uh, And if you get a, a person who's truly an expert at the faith, then the young man or young woman who's jailed for terrorism might, if, if he or she loses the argument with, with the, uh, the more pacific-minded expert, might well give up uh, the cause. Uh, at least in some cases, that's been, that's been done successfully. And you get a chance to have a kind of combat of ideas instead of a, a combat of, with, with, with weapons. And uh, if, if the terrorist's motivation is indeed religious, and frequently they're very religious, uh, then the religious authority might be able to talk them down from it. Yeah, and in the uh, the Moroccan system, it's not just uh, Islamic scholars. They bring in Christian scholars to talk, uh, just to have an exchange of views. I was being kind of a wise guy, and I asked the head of the school, oh, do you, do you bring in uh, rabbis too? You bring, And he said, yes. They- <laughs> <laughs> they also bring in rabbis to talk. And then I really uh, hit it. I said, okay, how about Shiites? Do you bring in any Shiites? And he said, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> he said, they have nothing to teach us. So, <laughs> I mean, you found, I found the line, in other words, like, you know, Sunnis, Catholics, Jews, fine. Shiites, no. So, that's where they draw the line. It was interesting. Um, just switching uh, around a little bit, when we look at sort of popular notions of what's going on or, or what happens in these situations of political violence, people sometimes talk about terrorism and guerrilla warfare in the same breath. And if you look at, for example, how uh, Ted Gurr defines these things in terms of a ratio of power, like the terrorists are down at a a low end of the ratio of power with respect to the regime. That is, they're weak, and so they use terrorism as a tactic because they're weak. Uh, It's not that they want to be terrorists, they just have to be terrorists. But then if they get a little stronger, then they become guerrillas, where they start taking control of territory, and they start being more organized, and they start have training and and have uh, coherent units, and they start to practice more elaborate hit-and-run attacks and things like that. And so from his perspective, it's all just you're moving up and down the spectrum, and uh, that that's the relationship between, say, the terrorist and the guerrilla. It's just a difference in strength. And so I wanted to discuss, I mean, how people use those terms and, and get your take on, uh, you know, is the terrorist the same as the guerrilla or how do they relate? There is a, a confusion between the terms frequently. Um, in the law of armed conflict, uh, you can be a guerrilla uh, and you could be a commando operating semi-independently for your state army. 
and those are legal. And, um, and there's plenty of, of justification in politics and morals for, for a revolution, in fact, against a tyranny. So let's say, so the guerrilla, uh, guerrilla war simply means small war and it comes out of Spanish and it comes out of, uh, 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 insurgency in Spain, some of it directed by the church, some by farmers or individuals from towns or monarchists or people from the army. Uh, and it was directed against an invasion by Napoleon. And I think most Americans would think it's quite proper to be insurgents against Napoleon's invading army. And so guerrilla war can be legal and moral and, um, and, it, and it is in many respects and it's protected in the law of armed conflict. Um, it's useful to remember uh, one of the Geneva Conventions um, and terrorism literature seems to always ignore this. So let's mention it. Uh, Article 4 of Geneva Convention 3 going all the way back to 1949 gets at this problem um, in the context of what a proper prisoner of war is. And the convention says that you can, you can be a legitimate combatant as long as you meet just four standards, and they're not enormously hard to meet. Um, they are for a terrorist, but they're not for a proper uh, soldier or a guerrilla. One has to be under command of a person responsible uh, for their subordinates, one has to have a fixed or distinctive sign or emblem, which you can see at a distance. That could be something very simple, like a red a red armband, if, if everybody's wearing those. Uh, carry arms openly and conduct operations in accord with laws and customs of war. Those are only four things uh, one can do to meet the standards then for international law in some respects to be a legitimate belligerent. And so it's uh, it's rather shameful that terrorists think they can't do that or that they needn't bother. But that's an indicator of how the distance, you know, there's great distance between between proper resistance and between terrorism. There's so many uh, forces in the world that that won their liberties with with proper uh, observance of law of armed conflict. And there's so many non-military movements like, say, Solidarity, which achieved absolutely incredible gains in human dignity and liberty without using terrorism. Uh, terrorism is a choice. Uh, and, and it's not something we're just driven to because we're on a scale somewhere between strength and weakness. It's a choice. There are several new books out now. I've just noticed reviews in the Wall Street Journal and other places, Washington Post, um, on Franz Fanon. Hmm. And he's a good example of a guy who made a choice to actually encourage illicit violence he had a proper concern about French colonialism, and he was a brilliant man and educated in Lyon and France, but he ends up in Algeria and he ends up supporting the FLN. Uh, and that's fine so far, but the FLN then undertook a systematic programs of terror against civilians in Algiers and other places, like cafe bombings. Uh, and through his writing and broadcasts for the Voice of Algeria, their, their guerrilla station, um, he popularized the conception that this, was, this kind of shock tactics was legitimate. 
that's an example of a brilliant man who made a choice to allow and foster terrorism. Um, and he wrote well of the women who were, who were couriers for bombs and who were doing those cafe bombings. He wrote well for the FLN when they'd made a strategic choice in 1956 at a conference called SUMAM to go into bombing as opposed to guerrilla war. So it's a, it's a human choice and uh, it's made by very strong powers and it's made by very weak sub-state actors and it's evil every time. Evil every time, that's good. It's good to bring the value judgment into this because it's not just a technical definition. There's a values basis to it, and that is, that's well said, well said. When we look at the Houthis, <clears throat> for example, they're kind of, you know, when we look at our different definitions we've just discussed, I mean, they... They wear uniforms. They have a command structure. They claim to be the legitimate government of Yemen. And in their statements, they speak as the government of Yemen. And uh, I mean, they, they fit not only the definitions of a guerrilla force, um, they, according to them, are a state actor, not recognized, but they think so. So when they're attacking random ships on the high seas or doing other things that they do, um, how do we respond to that? I mean, you know, we want to we call them terrorists and they're using terror tactics. They're using uh, piratical tactics, but at the same time, they claim to be this legitimate force. So how do they fit into the mix exactly? I would uh, almost describe Yemen as a, in a state of near continuous civil war um, during much of our lifetimes. There have been periods when it quieted down, periods when authority was extended from the capital, but many more periods when either chaos or division or outright civil war was occurring. So for me, it's hard to claim uh, complete legitimacy uh, for any particular governors in Yemen. Um, uh, it's a it's a terrible situation, but it's hard for I think an American to 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 really to take sides. Um, uh, certainly, what makes a credible force is political legitimacy, and one way to garner that I think is to con confine your military targets to your your targeting to military forces of the enemy. And if they were resisting tyranny from based in Sanaa or some other place, um, I think Americans might be kind of sympathetic. But as it is, um, I don't think there's a there's a clear side for the U.S. to get on to. Um, of course, the Saudis had their choice about what to do, but American relations with Saudi are rather dicey too. So um, the U.S. is in a tough spot. Uh, the reason that some of the definitional uh, carving out has been done, to go back to your opening remarks, uh, is to do with a certain um, desperation in the White House to trigger, figure out how we can actually help people in Yemen and not be so constricted by our own laws and designations uh, having to do with the militants. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a tragedy and uh, famine and disease, uh, and uh, the Americans would like to help. And so that's why the Biden administration thought it would help to remove the designation. But now they've, they've switched gears on us. But 
there isn't, I don't think, a, a very clear position for America. Perhaps you can see one. I can't. Well, I know that the administration doesn't want the conflict to escalate, which you know is probably a good idea. They've been very careful with targeting and uh, other aspects of the use of force where they have only targeted weapon systems to a lesser degree control systems and in statements been very specific about say taking out a missile that was aimed at ships like they it's interesting to watch the language they're being very specific about how this is this is like direct counterforce so as not to say that we're at war with the Houthis or at war with Yemen, to not give any hint that they want this to expand, to not tell, for example, the Houthi leadership that they're going to be targeted by drones or that there's going to be some kind of uh, you know, direct action along those lines. So I, I think that there's a rationale here. It's not that they're just kind of flailing about. I think that they, but what they want and what's actually happening are two different things because they want to deter the Houthis. The Houthis are completely undeterred. And if, if anything, we've seen their side escalate, certainly in their rhetoric. And so part of deterrence is having the other side cooperate. Right now, they're just not cooperating. They're going to continue because they're driven to do what they do by their ideology, by their hatred of Israel, by their, you know, hatred or at least not feeling very good about the West. And they are backed by Iranian money and arms, and they're just going to continue. So how we define it, how they define it, or however it works, we're really getting down to the basics of, can we convince them to stop what they're doing? And so far, the answer is no. Um, and to the extent that Offering them these carve-outs, limiting our force, limiting our rhetoric. On the one hand, that could communicate to them that, hey, the United States is going easy with us. Maybe we should back off. But the other thing that that can communicate, as we saw in the case of Vietnam, is the United States is weak. The United States is a paper tiger. We don't have to be afraid of these people, and we can just push it to the hilt. So what we're communicating and what they are receiving may be two different things. Maybe so. Well, Chris, this has been a great discussion. I want to thank you for coming on um, and uh, hope we can talk again sometime. I don't think that our topic is going away. No, not a chance. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Robbins. Thank you. Um, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. If you liked our podcast, please uh, subscribe, share, and rate it. Uh, hopefully a good rating. And spread the word. Uh, for IWP, I'm Jim Robbins. Join us next week for another edition of the IWP Podcast.